Hello, we're uh, here from the ACG and we're currently in the third lockdown that we've been in. We did a podcast quite a few months ago discussing what the situation was at the time, but obviously things have moved on quite a lot and not for the better. We're currently in a situation where the cases are extremely high. We've passed over 100,000 deaths. And even though the government talks about, oh, it's starting to go down, it is going down from an extremely high number. So this has great implications for the working class. And today in this podcast, we're going to discuss some of these implications and also the potential for a fight back against what's going on. So I have with me five members of the ACG, and they represent different age groups and also different sectors of the economy, a good mix of people to discuss what some of the issues are today. So my first question really to start with is, so what are the issues at the moment for the working class? Well, the fact that there's a lot of people are finding it hard, if not impossible, to buy by the uh, health guidelines because they are being forced to go to work by their employers due to the precarious nature of their work or the, the zero hours, but also because of factors like unsafe workplaces and housing where they're which is you know poor housing so it's crowded so although there's there's always things in the media about how lots of people are not abiding by the guidelines the reality is that most people are trying to and a lot of people are but a lot of people just aren't able to because of their economic conditions but also because of the lack of support from the government in terms of benefits i'd like to comment on on on, uh, a bit about this and um yeah, I, th- I, w- I would say overall, most people doing as good as they, uh, as well as they can, really, under the circumstances. But as was previously said, it's the lack of clarity and and guidance or whatever you want to call it, in combination with uh, um, with with uh, gig economy uh, conditions. Obviously, uh, the way society works, we've uh, we got governments that uh, prioritize uh, the economy really rather than people's health. You know, they they try to uh, to juggle it and it don't really work you know you can't have one or the other really it's uh, got to be and also like we, we have to to mention the, um, the prevalence of of this um, conspiracy ideas and stuff it's becoming more widespread than than than, than previously thought i think because of the lack of the lack of uh, any form of useful uh, guidance or help and uh, i also think that uh, this government is full of psychopaths that still believe in uh, herd immunity, whether they would uh, deny it or not. I still think that their um, kind of view on the value of people is not much more than a figure in the in the grand scheme of economics. I think agreeing with everything else that has been said already in terms of of the conditions that people are in, making it difficult to manage the pandemic anyway and and the fact that people are still going to work a lot of workplaces haven't shut down it's not been very stringent at least this lockdown round like for purely economic reasons people are are having to expose themselves i know the train station up near me is almost as busy as it was you know two years ago i think that another issue that is really frustrating to see is that it feels like it's very difficult to to communicate or to do, to have anything be heard by the people that are making decisions. I know that there have been a few instances that there's been a bit of backlash over small things like the um, the free school meals policy. I know that they you know the government did reverse their decision there after a bit of backlash. But overall, the fact that we have the independent sage committee, for instance, that are 
putting together yeah. their own briefings. They're putting together all sorts of advice, and it's just being ignored. So there's the there's the sense that there are people out there that have an idea of how best to to navigate the situation, as difficult as that might be. Really, there's not really a clear way to communicate. Obviously, we can't you know go out really protesting's not so much on the cards so the, it just feels like there's um the way to communicate and that output has been frustrated quite a bit i'd say that's a bit of an issue i think like Vic said it's like people not connecting so people are kind of connecting maybe you know with people in their families or you know people that they immediately work with have that kind of contact with but the bigger picture seems to elude most people and the media and so forth and the internet have a tendency to atomize people even more, even though it would appear that it's a, it's a means of vacation and so forth. Most people won't be looking to independent sage. They'll be looking to Facebook and they'll be looking to uh, maybe WhatsApp groups that they're, they're part of. You know, that's a broad generalization. Obviously, not everybody is, but a lot of people are. But I think the other issue is that you know the vast majority of workers in this country are not unionized don't therefore tend to have any collective organisation in their workplaces, probably don't have any sort of robust health and safety kind of consciousness in their workplaces, and there probably are too many risk assessments, not real risk assessments having been undertaken in these relatively small and medium-sized workplaces. So there's that kind of atomization as well. But even where people are in unions, I think whether there are recognised unions, I think people, you know, aren't really in trade unions, and it's it's really apparent that although people might be card carriers and so forth, they don't feel part of of the the trade union itself. Um, and I think there's a lot of frustration really with people um, who are in unions, feeling that it's very distant, that you know, they're not getting the information and. And that they're not really feeling particularly supported or defended by the unions. Now, we've all, you know, obviously as anarchist communists, we, we have our critique of the, of the trade unions. And, and in, in some ways, this has kind of reinforced that. It's just kind of shown that it is correct, you know, that the, the trade unions as vehicles of transformation, social transformation, well, aren't. But also as, as means of defence, they are massively limited. And I think the kind of crisis has revealed that to a great extent. But it's also, as I say, really exposed the fact that people are, generally speaking, most people are not collectively organised. They're not, they're not in that position. And that's led to a further, ever further, if you like, atomization of individuals, um, whether they're working, whether they're on furlough, or whether they're, they're doing everything from home, as it were. Yes, I, I agree with everything people have said so far. I'd just like to add about pickets and demonstrations. Um, there's been some ambiguity coming from uh, the police and I think the Crown Prosecution Service over, over whether we uh, still have the uh, right to, to picket. And there's been some recent examples of that. And the same, obviously, uh, demonstrations are, are now impossible to, to mount. And, you know, we've had, what, almost a year of of this uh, where we're not able to create a street presence. There have been notable exceptions to this. Um, 
down in Black Lives Matter, a big man has got a few pickets during this last year. In a lot of ways, it's affected political activity in a big way. Plus, you know, you, you can't hand out uh, your propaganda on the, the streets anymore, uh, either, either outside tube stations or, or workplaces or, or um, on demonstrations. So that's had a big effect. Um, Jake, you say a little bit more about what it's like in your workplace um, during the pandemic recently? What have been some of the issues that you've been facing? Well, it's been, uh, to start with, uh, it was, um, I work in the post office, and to start with, it was very, very slow. People were basically waiting for a good couple of weeks after, um, after the first wave of COVID was in the news for any form of action to be taken by the union or management and uh, yeah it, it took a good couple of weeks and i still remember uh, there was absolutely no ppe equipment whatsoever and i was only after like lots of people started started uh, complaining about it up and down the country that they were forced into kind of out of embarrassment because i think they were going to get exposed in the media for it uh, to actually supply some hand sanitizer and some basic mouth protection equipment, etc. Social distancing, that, that wasn't even tried until probably a couple of weeks after that. I would say in a big workplace where there's, there's lack of space as it is, where, where there's hundreds of people on the floor, even, even uh, the best efforts, it's almost impossible to keep social distance. The, the job wouldn't work if, if, if we would take all the precautions, really. It's, it is a bit of a gamble, to be honest. The latest I've heard, actually, in my office in central London is that there's been one death in the processing unit, and there's just basically been rumours about it, but none of this information has come from either management or the union. It's just through uh, word of mouth. It's been confirmed to me now. So that's one death. So I don't know how many people has been serious hit. But I mean, uh, this is obviously not an isolation to my office. That, that would be going on up and down the country. I, I was wondering why why um, no one's saying anything. Okay, is the union really that crap? I know their they're, they're critique of the reformism and stuff. But I was wondering what, what's their agenda behind it. It's a bit weird. So it's not great. They also introduced the thing that we're not allowed to travel together in the vans down on delivery, which might sound reasonable, because it's um, no social distancing going on there. But you work with the same driver day in, day out, and instead of that, they give us bus tickets to travel on the bus with like 20, 30 people down on delivery. So, like, which one is the safest? Hard to say, really. I mean, to be honest, uh, it's actually uh, the union has been uh, most against us sharing vans because I've heard from the local rep that apparently they think it's going to save jobs jobs if we have to go on, uh, go on the buses rather than traveling by van because it will take us longer to get down on the delivery points. So, don't seem to be about health and safety at all, really. Yeah, so it's not great. It's not great. Uh, Deck, what's been happening where you work? Well, we've all been working from home on certain people who do my job, which is in higher education. And so, for example, the lecturers and most of the student-facing support staff, as well as the vast majority of other staffs in the higher education sector and indeed the further education sector, have been working from home. But there's always been this constant sense that that's going to change at fairly short notice which has created a great deal of well innovation a great deal of anxiety staff so at the moment 
the majority of teaching has is remaining online, and that's likely to remain certainly into the middle of February, the, the earliest. But individual departments, and particularly heads of departments who are off alone to themselves, have been pushing numbers of staff teaching staff back into face-to-face teaching, even though they've been told that you know, that's not how things should be proceeding. With them. So, yeah, it's the, the constant sense that we could be brought back at relatively short notice when everybody knows that that's kind of nonsense, you know, that it just isn't not just a good idea, but it's it's a profoundly bad idea. And, uh, and in some ways, it's unlikely to happen as well. Although, you know, it could possibly happen in some particular circumstances. Each university has a certain amount of leeway and can interpret the government guidelines in ways that kind of suit them. So there's that, and there's that kind of gnawing anxiety. The union, the UCU, have called for no no face-to-face teaching this academic year. So, you know, that's a good thing, but that hasn't been accepted by the government. So there's there's lots of ongoing fights, and there's a lot of individual fights, a lot of sort of casework for people that are involved in union casework, for example, about how people, particularly people who are, you know, looking after people, carers, uh, parents and so forth, how they're being expected to work and uh, there's a lot of inflexibility being shown. So if there's that kind of low-level harassment, if you like, going on in a highly unionised and professional, so-called professional workplace, you can imagine just how bad it is in other places. Horrific. We don't need to imagine because stories do filter through. And obviously through things like No Safe, No Work, we do hear some horror stories. So yeah, it, it would appear that at one level, higher education is relatively privileged in terms of our situation with regards to having to come into work. How long that will last is another question, really. I think there's some potential big fights ahead in the not-too-distant future. So, Vic, you're actually a student, but you were also working in the hospitality sector. So what's been like for you being a student, but also then you must have lost your job when there was the lockdown again? You've probably been in and out of work, I would imagine. So can you explain a bit about what it's like being student in this situation and also having to earn a living in jobs which keep shutting down because of lockdown? Um, yeah, I mean, thankfully this time I was put on furlough just through virtue of the furlough scheme. <clears throat> had slightly different stipulations this time. Obviously, it's still quite precarious because lots of places have, have shut down in the meantime. So they haven't been able to keep their staff on. It doesn't look like that's going to be the case now. I've no idea when things are going to open back up again. In terms of uh, being a student, I'm at a FE college at the moment and we've moved all online now. But I know that the campus is still open. So I know they've still got like the computer lab and the library and everything is still there. Students come in if they don't have equipment at home. I know all of my teachers have still been going into work because they have been delivering their classes from the classrooms. They've not been delivering them from home. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been slightly disruptful, but I'm more comfortable with how it is now. 
I think especially FE colleges are going to have issues in terms of things like engagement and a lot of people in my cohort are like parents or they're single parents and they're working and so it's, I think it's quite difficult for those people to be juggling not just their children's education but their own education and fitting all of that in. I definitely say it would be preferable to going in because we were going in and I mean there were there were little rules like you could you had to wear your mask in the corridors and things like that but you end up being in a classroom full of 30 odd people and there's only so much room in a class that you can't realistically be doing social distancing they're not massive campuses and I imagine the situation would be quite similar across at least across London campuses I know the BTEC students still had to sort of go in and do all of their exams because they couldn't be doing them from home in terms of what Dex said, we have sort of been working off of this expectation that we're, we're going to be going back in at some point. Not exactly sure when, but it could be very soon. And we're sort of going off of that. Things have been postponed, in-person testing, for instance. And it's just like, we'll, we'll let you know, but probably soon we're not quite. I don't, I'm not sure that there's so much information has been circulated. I expect they'll just go back as soon as they're told because they they did my college did try to shut down a little bit before Christmas just because the cases were quite high in the borough and and they were told off by the education secretary so if they're going to be threatened with legal action by the government I can't see them going against that yeah I think this is preferable definitely it's it's going to be safer for everyone involved as far as I can see as long as people are able to get equipment at home which is obviously not that easy but it's we're still working off the expectation that we will be going back quite soon you know regardless of numbers or anything like that we're just sort of waiting waiting for the time to finish on the lockdown but does anyone have anything any other issues to raise or anyone want to make any comments on any of points anyone has said so far there was an article in the paper pointing out that although the situation is that there are a lot of people are forced to work because of their circumstances and that there's been virtually no the health and safety executive has done virtually no inspections and certainly no closing down of any employers for flouting safety. And a glaring example of that was it turned out a few days ago that the DVLA, which is the driving license centre in Wales, they've had an outbreak there where 500 people have tested positive. And it turns out that they've been working 24 hours shifts around the clock. They've been hot desking. There's been no masks, so people sharing screens. It's just a, a horror story of, of things. This is a, a government department. That just shows where we're at and, and how it's all about, you know, the only people who get grief for not abiding by safety are employees, and yet employers are often the, the main culprit. Yeah, I mean, the Health and Safety Executive has been slowly defunded for many, many years. It's it's very, very limited in what it can actually do, just, just in physical terms. There's very few, relatively speaking, health and safety inspectors. Health and safety inspections in normal times are irregular and very often non-existent in many workplaces. So I cannot imagine that at the present time, the health and safety executive are uh, being massively funded and supported in the work of you know, making sure that places are safe to work in. I don't think that's happening. So, <laughs> so something like this happening with the DVLA is particularly interesting because obviously the DVLA in Cardiff is unionised. It's organised, I would imagine, by the PCS 
union, and, and yet still incredibly bad practice has been revealed. So although you might have places where there is formal union recognition on the ground, the, um, the, 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 the collective organisation and perhaps confidence, the kind of power that uh, workers hold on the shop floor, as it were, has been diminished. So, you know, that, that's a, a serious thing. Um, the other thing I think in the somewhat longer term is a challenge for organising and uh, building workers' power is the fact that employers will be using this period as an opportunity to make changes that will benefit them in the long term. And one of those will be having people working from home. So although working from home, you know, is it has, has its good points for many, many workers, city workers who have to schlep a long way into work and, and so, you know, they're working in pretty horrible uh, conditions. It's mostly office workers. At the same time, what it means is an added individuation and atomization of workers, that, that any sort of sense of collectivity that might arise from day-to-day um, life in work is, is going to be in some ways changed as, uh, as people find that they're working from home, not just like on a flexible level, on a flexible sort of basis, but like perhaps as basically their entire working week. I mean, there has been some um, changes. There's, there's actually been some councils, local councils, who have effectively closed down their, some of, not all, but some of their offices and have said that basically you're working from home from now on. That will be your modus operandi. Uh, any kind of significant negotiation is a state of companies, really. And if it's happening in you know, one place, it will catch on. It's, it's a great idea for employers. Not only does it kind of isolate workers to, to a great extent, it also means they don't have to pay for the upkeep of offices, the uh, utilities, and so on and so forth. It's, it's, it's highly problematic and it's something that we'll have to think about a lot when it comes to workplace organisation. The other thing on that is that working from home in the sort of circumstances that Dick rightly outlines is disproportionately bad for women who are mothers because women still do the majority of childcare and so for a lot of them that means that if they've got children who are preschool in particular then they're having to try and juggle looking after the kids and and working. So, you know, that's yet another pressure and, and difficulty. And also, um, some councils have uh, used uh, the pre- pretext of, of closing some of their facilities down with the intention of permanently closing those facilities down. I mean, for example, in Tower Hamlets, a Labour council has uh, shuttered uh, adult day centres, you know, which are really desperately needed uh, and with a long-term aim of closing them permanently. Uh, other councils, you know, um, same with libraries, that sort of thing. So there's that. The other thing I like to talk about is, um, well, we seem to be uh, in shell shock. You know, there's now over 106,000 deaths in this country. I think it's the highest rates uh, on a worldwide level, correct me if I'm wrong. And yet the position of the government doesn't seem to be that affected very much. Their approval levels haven't fallen that much. And at the same time, we get the Labour Party, you know, which is totally supine. 
and is actually backing uh, various moves by the Johnson government. For example, that unnecessary visit to Scotland, it was condoned by Keir Starmer. So we've got the situation of a non-existent parliamentary opposition, which, you know, points further to the fact that we need to actually create a, a real opposition to this government at, at the grassroots level. Adek, could you say anything about the situation in Scotland and how that might be different from what we're experiencing in England? There's a kind of an illusion to some extent that, you know, we've done everything pretty much right here in Scotland, that the government up here has basically been on top of things as much as they could be expected to be, given the, the, you know, how things, quickly things can develop. But, you know, the debts are still really, really high. I and mean, particularly at the, you know, the beginning of the crisis, the debts in care homes was absolutely incredible. It was on a par with anything that was happening in the UK generally. I think that one of the issues is that you wouldn't have to be particularly good to look far better than the Westminster government, and that's really something that the, the Scottish nationalists are, are kind of benefiting. They've also been kind of fairly open and and uh, clearly uh, communicating things in a way that you know, Westminster uh, obviously hasn't been, and they're having a great deal of sympathy from people who wouldn't necessarily be voting for the SNP. I think, generally speaking, it's, it's going to be taken advantage of by the nationalists to push through a, another referendum. And to be honest, I think if there was a referendum in the next uh, 24 hours, most likely we would have an independent Scotland for sure. That said, the people who will, who will never be in favour of that are also quite problematic because the, there is mostly anecdotal evidence of people who are so vociferously anti-Scottish nationalists going out of their way to just basically do everything to, to undermine the lockdown and so forth, even to the point of ignoring any kind of social distancing recommendations or anything like that. There's, there's a definite element of that there. But in terms of the, the kind of the, the general kind of oppositional or social movement in Scotland, then, you know, the, the, the situation is the same. There isn't developing a opposition kind of street movement or, or, or whatever you might call it that's, that's, that's anti-capitalist. Because really there just isn't, that isn't really on the agenda. You know, there, there doesn't seem to be any, anything like that at all, to be honest. Well, certainly the struggles at the, the level of institutions, uh, struggles at the level of uh, workplaces and so forth, but it's all it's all fairly fragmented, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. So maybe we could talk a bit about what evidence there is of what is happening to resist what's going on, and also maybe what we think we could be doing. I did attend the United Voices of the World sort of consultative meeting yesterday and they have managed to actually organize quite a few workplaces around COVID-related issues. In particular, they have a, a strike going on in a care home in North London. They've also got they're now organizing nursery workers, early years workers, which is very important because they're one of the groups that was left out of the lockdown and forced to work. And there's been quite a lot of cases there. Um, and they're also, I have been organizing cleaners. So just to look at the website gives you an idea that with concerted effort on the part of a small union, they have actually managed to, to, to organize quite a lot of fight back to protect their workers on safety issues, but also on things like sick pay. 
So does anyone here know anything more about what kind of things are happening that we could sort of build from and hopefully that more of this would happen? Yeah, the uh, London Renters Union is one of the groups that have been organising and people probably know that there's been a, a moratorium on landlords evicting people during the pandemic, which is really important, although some evictions have still been happening. But the LRU were one of the main groups that put pressure so that came about and it is is a sort of anarchist model in terms of how it's organized about being people involved are the people people involved in all the decision making and it's based on pickets and direct action they are trying to spread into other boroughs i think they're in about six boroughs in london at present and i know they're trying to set up a branch in brent so i I would say you know that's a good initiative and something people should um, publicize and learn from I mean, there's obviously the, the strikes of British Gas, which are kind of ongoing, and there's been more announced. That's organised by the GMB union. You know, and that's that's around massive changes to contracts, indeed, absolutely new contracts, which is kind of sign off or the kind of territory. And there's also the ongoing, I think it might have come to a conclusion just in the last couple of days, the, the Heathrow industrial action as well. But it is bitty. It is kind of fairly dispersed and it isn't, can't be seen as a generalised or generalising sort of wave of, uh, of industrial action. Indeed, far from it. But certainly, you know, things like Nurses United and their campaign for pay at the moment. I mean, there's basically there's a very distinct sense amongst many people working in the NHS that the unions, and I think there's something like 13 unions or something like that actually operate in the NHS, you know, really aren't stepping up to the plate. Well, where's a surprise? And that independent activity must be undertaken to, to kind of either push the unions to do something or to just take people to take action directly, as it were, direct action. And I think that's, that's quite interesting because that's almost unprecedented in the present. In the, in the modern sort of era, you know, certainly in the last 25, 30 years, sort of uh, the emergence of a independent rank and file kind of organisation that does seem to have captured the imagination of a lot of people working in the NHS, particularly nursing staff. So there's that. But in terms of, you know, what do we want to see happen? Well, ultimately, you know, what we'd like to see is working class self-organisation in workplaces and in the community and uh, all the rest of it, you know, I mean, that, that's what we'd like to see. You know, that's really what we would need to see. And, you know, a massive and rapid growth in the confidence of, of the class uh, people to, to make, first of all, a stand against what's happening, both in, in workplaces and in communities, and then to maybe build towards changing things permanently. Um, it feels certainly... It's, to be, you know, realistic, but whilst there are green shoots, as it were, there's, there's some good things starting to happen. But the profound, like, sense of isolation between different struggles is really what strikes people, certainly strikes me. Which isn't to be kind of super defeatist, but I think we have to be kind of realistic about where we are at the moment. It's not a good place. And perhaps one thing that we could be doing, I think we do to some extent in the ACG, is to kind of draw attention to these disparate struggles. 
and suggest that you know maybe there's there's a great deal of commonality and that we could be working together. I think there is a tendency for people to kind of duplicate things, to not be aware of what other people are doing, and that's that's really held things back in the past, and it's going to hold things back a lot in the future unless we start to, to address it. So in the ACG, we helped launch the No Safety, No Work campaign. And I think that one of the goals of that campaign was exactly that, to try at least to draw attention to all the different things that are going on, hoping that somehow we could facilitate people at least being aware of what else was going on. That was one of the aims. Um, it just seems that with what's going on now, the workplace does become particularly important, even though with things like housing, Often the community has been important, but with the difficulty of actually going out and protesting on the street, it seems that the workplace has become quite important. However, in the first lockdown, mutual aid groups had become were quite significant. And I was wondering whether we could talk a little bit about whether or not that sort of thing is still going on. Is there any kind of self-organization in communities that could maybe carry on after the lockdown? And the, the main thing that I've come across is really things in terms of food. And a few people we've come across are actually involved in various food, local food projects and providing food directly to people rather than relying on supermarkets. So does anyone have any comments to make or any knowledge of what's going on in that sort of community mutual aid area of resistance? In Glasgow, the Glasgow Mutual Aid Network has actually re-emerged, kind of never entirely went away, obviously, but it has re-emerged in the last a month or so. And you do see evidence of that and it's kind of posters and stickers and so forth, which, you know, they're, they're getting about the place and they've been quite a significant online presence too. In terms of what they're doing, I don't think it's, it's really significantly any different to what they were doing in the first lockdown. It hasn't become, if you like, more politicised. Well, I was I was in the park today earlier for a fine weekend walk or one of them, and there was a, a stall from Food Not Bombs, and they were giving away free food and so forth. And, you know, that's an uh, initiative that has emerged just in recent months, I think. Of course, Food Not Bombs is, is not particularly relating to the, the COVID situation, but it's, it's kind of putting out questions about the nature of food production and distribution and so forth, which is perhaps a good thing. All right, so maybe we could finish off if uh, we could have one more go around. Of if anyone wants to comment on any aspect of our discussion, what we hope will happen in the next months, what we think is likely to happen, and what we think anarchist communists can do. This pandemic has highlighted some of the issues involved with the NHS. We know that every, every winter for the last 10 years, maybe, we're told for a in the lead up and during the winter that uh, it could be a crisis for the NHS because if there's a big outbreak of flu, you know, it'll be overstretched. Well, of course, we've had that with brass knobs on in, in the case of the pandemic. But we know that um, the way the NHS has been, all the cuts it's had over the last 10 years, which contrary to what a lot, lot of left-wing people tell you, have been implemented by new labour and the Lib Dems as well, that the, you know, that's behind all this. I mean, we've got lots of criticism of the NHS anyway as, as an institution, and we'd like to see something radically different uh, in the future. But the fact that it's been so run down and has, has made things a lot worse than they need have been, you know, in terms of there's just not the resources there, there's not the staff there, 
Um, I read today that um, in Germany, for example, if there'd been the same spending on the health service in the UK as there had been in Germany, that since 2000 there'd have been a 260 billion more spent on the NHS. That's covering the years 2000 to 2018. So that just shows, you know, that translates into the lack of facilities, lack of hospital beds. You know, they set up these Nightingale hospitals and, and they just didn't have anyone to staff them because they've been, because there's a shortfall of 40,000 nurses or whatever it is. So, but if you couple all that with the fact that um, NHS staff in that context are, are poorly paid mostly, have had to endure pay freezes and now have had all the illness, stress and overwork of this pandemic, there is the potential there, we would hope, for people to to realise it's no use going on the usual passive marches or writing petitions or all these things that they actually have to, or putting their reliance in one or more of the, the 13 unions. You know, they have to actually organise themselves and make links with the community and other struggles to, you know, to get to a better place, which will benefit us all. It's clear from the discussion that um, the, the employers are, are trying to grab back as much as possible, you know, from, from the losses they made over COVID, but also, you know, because they, they need to restructure anyway. Uh, and, you know, so they're looking at uh, various attempts in different uh, industries and different workplaces at you know, firing and rehiring on on worse uh, condition and so obviously that needs to be fought you know we, we've got to be very wary of them doing this un under the veil of the pandemic but at the same time you know we should be thinking of advancing our own demands around work because in a lot of ways uh, the pandemic has, um, has put into question the whole idea of what is essential work and I think on the European continent, at least, people are now talking about, you know, a shorter working week, you know, down to 32 hours, four-day week. And maybe we should be um, look, looking at things like that, cutting the working week, <laughs> not as a transitional demand, but as, as a way of questioning the, the whole idea of work. You know, all right, there's, um, things aren't looking good at the moment. Well, we need to be advancing positive demands around the workplace well, to, to stay with the positive vibe there <laughs> um, yeah I, I mean i think what we can be doing is just keeping a really close up as as the acg as as libertarian communists we need to be like keeping an eye on what's going on we need to be talking about it we need to like be getting what we're saying out there as much as possible we need to be doing the stuff that we're, you know, we were doing before in as much as that we can do it now. And I think if there's a way that we can help to develop, improve the coordination between the different struggles, you know, however sort of modestly we can do that, I think that's a really, you know, super important thing that we need to do. And we need to be maybe reaching out to uh, like everybody that is is fighting back in one way or another, and and helping to to keep these people kind of in touch and talking to each other. And I think our work through no uh, safety, no work is is trying to do that. You know, and I think that's a very practical thing that we're doing at the moment. Right. Thank you, everyone, for this useful discussion. 
This will be up on our podcast soon, and we urge people to also look at our No Safety, No Work campaign. Think about getting involved in some of these things that are going on. And we're always open to hearing what people are doing. Any news that you have about struggles or what's going on in your workplace or community, please communicate with us and let us know what's going on so we can maybe help facilitate this bringing together of all the different things that are happening. 